Hello and welcome to another episode of Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we focus on the craft, the process, the business, and pretty much everything in between. We leave no stone unturned. My name is Gary Condes, and I'm talking to you from London in the UK. And I'm joined by my fellow actors and acting teachers and coaches, Brian Casp, who is based in Prague, the Czech Republic. Hello, Brian. How are you doing over there? Hanging in there? Yeah, it's good. It snowed today. It was really nice. Oh, fantastic. Really beautiful. Is it a winter wonderland, Prague? Because Prague's got that backdrop for it. The first hour of the snow is a winter wonderland, and then it turns to slush, and it gets real <laughs> gross when you're walking, crossing the street. So yeah. yes, it is, and no, it isn't. Well, you just described Chicago in March. You're like, and then you go, no. Yeah, it's beautiful for a little while. Yeah, we had a flurry in London. We hardly get snow in the big smoke here. We get it occasionally, but we got dumped on for 24 hours and now it's gone. But, you know, particularly in London, we get it so seldom that it's such a big deal when it does snow and sticks and it's that fluffy stuff. Oh, it's great. Yeah. So, Andrea, how is the snow factor in Mallorca? No, we have uh, we have snow in the mountains. We had a lovely snowstorm about a week and a half, two weeks ago, around the time that Madrid got a big storm. So, you know, I was at the beach last weekend and could look to the snow-capped mountains. It was pretty. It was pretty lovely. Gorgeous. Fantastic. Well, that sounds great. So now the weather report is over with, (laughs) let's flag up what we are going to talk about in this episode. So we're going to get into the second part of our monologue discussion. If you remember, in part one, we covered how to look for and also how to select a monologue. Monologues can be a lonely endeavor and they have a number of pitfalls because of this So we're really going to get stuck into the rehearsal and performance of monologues. It's just the thing for those wintry days, right? (laughs) What you need is a good old monologue that acts as a hot water bottle for one's acting. (laughs) I love it. It's a good January, February project. Curl up with that monologue book. Yeah. All on your own, tucked away in the dark, bleak midwinter. That's right. I mean, truly, do you want to be doing this in the middle of July? No, you don't. Do it now. (laughs) But before we get into bleak midwinter monologues, we're going to have a check-in with each other and catch up with what we've been up to since we last spoke, work-wise or regarding our creative endeavours. You know, actually, you gave me an idea about the January conversation. Wouldn't it be fun if somebody put together sort of a month-by-month compilation of the kind of texts you should be reading, monologues and plays and film scripts, and and really catered it to, you know, the the feeling of that time of year and what you should be reading? That could be fun. That sounds like a great project. Yeah. Well, I have been teaching. I've been teaching some classes with the Schauspielschule Saboni, and I'm having a lot of fun. The students are great interesting and interested and they're at a really exciting place in their learning so i'm having a lot of fun with them i'll be doing that intensely over the next couple of weeks and then we'll see with lockdown where they are in terms of getting back into the theater space but right now thank you zoom for bringing the students in munich to me Last time we talked, Andrea, we had kind of discussed mm-hmm. prejudices that came with language. Did you work any more on that? Did you experiment you know, with that? Today we didn't so much, but it's it's definitely on my mind. Today was first year students 
And I find that some of the students are facing the challenge of not making up conversation, however that comes out, whether that's a function of the language or it's just where they are in their learning. And so I gave them a Catholic blessing today and told them that I absolved them of the need to create dialogue. <laughs> and they, they seem to understand mm. that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, I think we're working on that right now to really help them get super simple with calling out behavior. And then, of course, understanding why this is what we're doing and how it's going to be a benefit to them. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lovely, lovely group of people that I'm working with, and I'm very pleased for the opportunity. Fantastic. Sounds like you are building something there. I think so. Super cool. So, Brian, how about you? What have you been up to? After all of my pissing and moaning about not getting opportunities, I went and did my costume fitting for that project. And, you know, it does feel very good to be meeting people and to be getting into the costume workshop and seeing all the wonderful drawings and the costumes and feeling like you're a part of a project again. And it just felt really good to do that. So, you know, I think the advice that I got last week for making something creative out of it, I think that's really good advice. And I heartily endorse that to anyone else who's facing a similar kind of question about what it is that they're doing. It's such a up and down business anyway, that regardless of what you think you should be getting or anyone should be getting at this stage, something is interesting it's like well what can i do with this you know how about you gary what have you been up to this past week well i don't know if you remember that i was offered a job to direct a one-person show Mm -hmm. in holland in amsterdam that's happening i accepted and all terms have been ironed out and we had our first session so just to recap this is uh, not a play this is a devised piece from scratch where this actor who has a background in storytelling, which is, you know, different from dramatic or comedic plays or work of that nature. And he wants to do something more with it. And I'm like, well, if you want to make it more theatrical, I'm your guy. I'm going to make it more theatrical. So we started and we basically started from a point of sifting through his raw material and really clarifying for him what he wants it to be about. Now, we don't have to make any concrete decisions, but we got to make a start. So it was a great way to exercise another aspect of our analytical and interpretive skills and, you know, the gentle art of filtering complex concepts into simple but no less deep theatrical ideas. And that's, you know, helped me a lot the way I look at a written script. It's with me, even though we are creating it from scratch, it's with me as a way of projecting into the future as to what we might finally end up with something similar. So that's what I've been doing this week. And it's great to put another hat on. Been doing a lot of coaching and teaching. And uh, so it'd be great to sort of get the juices going from the ground up and eventually direct it in Amsterdam. Hopefully, fingers crossed, if all goes well and things are opened up, we're aiming for the autumn of this year. Okay, well, let's get let's get talking about these monologues. I'm excited to hear what you guys say about how to rehearse them and how to uh, to get them up on their feet. Fantastic. Cue drums. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? 
Well, WeAudition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does WeAudition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a WeAudition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, WeAudition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to WeAudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Cool. So we have our monologues, right? And we're raring to go. How do we work on them? How do we get them in our bodies, in our souls? What steps should people be taking or what things should people be thinking about as they start to work on their monologues? Okay, so there's so much to cover. I would say that by and large, it's a lot of the similar work that you would do on a scene. However, there are some peculiarities because it's a monologue and not a scene, even though the monologue might come out of a scene. But I just want to start by, first of all, differentiating between a monologue and a soliloquy. Yeah, I was going to ask, what is the difference there? Well, for me, A monologue is between characters in a scene as part of a dialogue, perhaps just as a long answer to something, or a speech delivered to the audience for information. Whereas a soliloquy is the character's personal inner thoughts voiced aloud to themselves. It's kind of an old-fashioned voiceover, if you like. And one may assume, I'd say, that a character delivering a soliloquy is telling the truth of their inner thoughts. Monologue may or may not be. Um, But that's the difference. And something that I learnt over time, the trap of a monologue is not honouring the fact that it should be treated always by the actor as an active incident between two people. Mm-hmm. So you need to know who you're talking to and why, mm-hmm. and that makes it active. But, you know, there's lots of other things you can consider, like, you know, moment before and your objectives and all of that stuff, which maybe you, you guys might want to talk about. But one thing I find in actors when I'm working with them, and it's a blind spot, is that they are working in a vacuum. When you're working on a monologue, you're working in a vacuum by yourself. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, things happen. And one of those things is that you forget that even though you might be in real life speaking for a length of time, you may well be interrupted at any point. But the problem is, is when you're working in a vacuum, you forget that. And when you're working on a monologue and it just becomes a torrent of words, it becomes an energetic, very speedy execution of words. And what we forget to is we forget that in real life, not that necessarily dramatic literature always has to be a photograph of real life, but it's certainly dealing with the behavior of real life. But also we check in with people to see whether they are nodding or not or shaking their head, or giving us any signs that what I'm saying is making any fucking sense at all, (laughs) and whether I'm getting closer 
to making my point and it landing and you getting it. And what happens is because of this isolated thing, which is a monologue and not a scene, and you're not getting stuff coming back at you or another person coming back at you, actors forget very quickly that they can pause or they can stop for a moment. And even if they're delivering it to an imaginary person, which a monologue when you're doing it for an audition purpose is, or you're doing it to the auditioner and you're making them the person that you're meant to be talking to, all of these variations, you still have have to check in with them and see that it's landing because we do that in real life the trap of working on a monologue is working in a in a vacuum by yourself yeah that's the biggest trap always it's the biggest trap right we forget whether you call it an objective or a want or a goal we're always trying to elicit a certain response but it's just that the writer hasn't given you the response in dialogue Let's say a monologue that is taken out of a scene where there is dialogue, but it just happens to be a large piece of words. If you're in that scene with that person, they will be nodding or they will be looking away or they will be eyes tearing up and all the rest of it. So it is actually a dialogue where the other person is not speaking. Right. An active incident Mm -hmm. between two people. What about you, Andrea? How do you start people on the journey? You know, it's similar to how you discuss what's happening in a scene when you're working on a scene. There are so many similar questions, and you're right. There is somebody else there with you in some way. You've got a partner in this dialogue, and I think that's the trap of even calling it a monologue, this idea that it's just a solo act. There's always somebody there, and we have to be so clear, as we do in any scene work, about the nature of the relationship, what the preceding circumstances are, what our point of view is. All of this work still has to be done. And there's one thing I want to address, though, that comes up sometimes when advice on monologues is given a little bit separately from scene work. And I know how I feel about it. I wonder how you feel about it. There's this idea that before you start rehearsing, you need to memorize the monologue. And I don't work that way. And I don't necessarily think it's essential to work that way because I find that the learning of the lines is part of the process of understanding the lines So as I look at them and try them out and piece them together and figure out why one thing comes after the next, I'm also slowly committing it to memory. But that's me. Do you too feel that with a monologue, it needs to be memorized before you can really get into rehearsal? I don't. I think it's like anything. If it works for the actor to be completely off book before they start delving into things, then I don't see that that's any kind of great Mm -hmm. um, travesty. But I don't personally think that I would need to, before I started really working on it, I could dip into the text or play around with it, try and find the meanings of it or get things wrong. I think that whatever gets you there is what I would say you should go with, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Yeah, I agree. What I coach and what I what I do myself, because my first question will be really finding what I'm getting the other person to do, the objective, the one, whatever you want to call it, right? Your action. Mm. Once I've established that, then I start reading it. I start to put it into the work and read it out aloud because learning lines puts you in your head and kind of, and of course, we're not talking about if you've only got 24 hours to do it and you know, you've got to learn your lines and you, so you've got to hurry up with it and do that. But if you've got a bit of time, yeah, I tend to do 
do what you say, Andrea, is to know the purpose behind it, first of all, and not maybe answer all of the questions yet, but particularly that one, because I've got to make a start. I can't just read it blank. And I just start to chew on the words from that purpose. And then from that sort of sensibility of speaking it out aloud and hearing it with purpose, maybe I'll fix someone on the wall who I'm talking to once I've discovered who that is and why. And and I'll start to chew on it that way and sketch around and fuck around with it in that way. Um, I mean, you know, the great British actor Mark Rylance says, I don't really learn lines. I learn what I'm doing. Yes. And then the lines from that. That's right. I, I agree very much with that. And I find that, again, that trap that we've spoken about is maybe exacerbated when actors think that they have to learn the lines first, because, you know, there are a number of dangers in just memorizing things without really understanding the whys and the doings. So that's one thing I would definitely encourage. Because how many people are learning lines with intonation yes. intact? Yeah, they're not learning the just the words. They're learning some in, intonation that wherever they get that from, some instinct. But they're including exactly. that. Yeah. yeah, that's why that's a trap. Is because you're learning it with the way that you're saying it. Yeah, that's right. Which is as yet uninformed. So why learn yeah. something that's incomplete? Right, that doesn't make sense to me. So I think we need to yeah. allow ourselves to um, to explore it and then get it into our brains and hearts a certain way as we understand it better. The other thing is, and I know this may seem incredibly simple, I'm almost certain the two of you work this way as well, but this is so important when we're working on speeches in the classroom, certainly, we almost always see a huge difference when we get another actor up on stage sitting in a chair yes. across from the actor and we just make it personal. And maybe Amen. there's a relationship there, there's a human there who's responding to you, who's listening to you, who's connecting to you. It completely can transform what is happening in the actor working. And as well, it's helpful sometimes to give that second actor a prompt, some kind of a question that the partner can ask, which then launches the monologue into being. So I, mm -hmm. I just find that when you get another actor into that space, it magically transforms into a dialogue and the energy shifts, yeah. it becomes more personal, it becomes more authentic and human and connected and surprising and spontaneous. And so I highly encourage if you can get a partner to sit with you in your rehearsals, please do so. You will be amazed by what a difference it can make. Because you're not having to imagine all of the responses. Mm -hmm. The responses you get for free just by the other person listening. Mm -hmm. You know, all of that work that you guys are talking about, Gary mentioned specifically about checking in, pausing, are they listening? Are they getting it? Are mm -hmm. they not? Are they angry? Are they bored? Right? Whatever the other person's actually giving you, you get for free. You don't have to create it out of your imagination. Yeah, absolutely. A classic one is when you ask a question or there's a question in the speech and the actor doesn't wait for an answer and just, are you listening to me? Because I hate you when you don't do that. Yeah. It's like, are you listening to me? Because I hate it when you don't do that. And it's like, yeah. it's a classic, isn't it? And it's like, just yeah. wait for a mini beat just to see if they're going to answer you or not. 
Um, I mean, another thing I find with monologues, and again, not so much in scenes, is that actors get more obsessed with the story of the monologue or the words or the fact that it's about a sad event or a grief-stricken situation or mm-hmm. a, a happy situation, recalling something. Because they're often... You lose the doing. Yeah. yeah, and they lose the doing and they get wrapped up in some, you know, in all of this emotional catch-up and they just spread it all o- over it. And it's like, hold on a minute, you've fallen into the emotional trap and you've fallen into an emotional obligation to this, what you feel the story needs because it's described. And I suppose because it's a monologue, it feels like it is just a sad event that you're retelling. Because there's no obligation to the other person because the other person may not be there. You can indulge yourself. Right. Because what actor doesn't want to wallow in the emotion? You know, we all want that. We all are, you know, whatever, masochistic about that. I think that's the right one, right? Where we're like, I want to, I want to feel this thing. Right. But, right. And so you forget that, oh, I got to actually get something from the other person or I got to affect the other person in some way. Yeah. You know, and that's why we hold back tears, because if we didn't, we wouldn't be able to finish our task, which is Mm -hmm. to get this person to commit to me or to hand over the money or whatever it is. Because it's like if I'm a a wreck on the floor in tears, then I can't do this thing. And also monologues are often about recounting a story where scenes are in the present jousting and playing Uh tennis about what's going on right now. Maybe they refer to the past, but it's to do with now. Whereas monologues are often an opportunity to deal with the past or recount the past or to have an opinion about the past. Mm -hmm. And then we go, well, this is a sad thing. This is a sad story. I must be sad. And it's like, nope. It's still the same as any other dramatic situation. Right, which means that if you have a monologue that is in the past and is heightened emotionally or anything like that, to really be on your guard, to really focus on what am I doing in this scene? What is the action? What do I need from the other person? Mm -hmm. And even if the actor, let's say it isn't part of a scene, but it is more of a soliloquy in terms of there isn't another person in the scene that you're talking to. Create one, choose one, and choose someone that is going to force you to be active. Choose someone that you're going to have to fight for or fight against, Mm -hmm. you know, or something to fight for. And if it is something out of your imagination, it's not in the script, then choose something personal to you, the actor, Mm -hmm. something that's going to get you going. Right. Because it's not in the script. You can choose whatever you want. Yeah. So make it about the boyfriend that spurned you or the bully that laughed in your face or whatever it is that, you know, or the parent that, sorry, mom, the, uh, <laughs> the parent that, that didn't show you their love. This is not personal for me, but like, you know, for other people, right? So if you make it personal to yourself mm-hmm. or do an as if, these other things that we're bringing in from regular scene work, you can do that. But how many times have you had students come in when you say, okay, well, who are you talking to? Or what is this in response to? And they go, oh, I'm not talking to anyone. I'm talking to myself. Yeah. Or I'm talking to God or I'm talking to, you know, and, and you, you kind of go, well, that's not going to help as much. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, to be or not to be, right? Classic. Everyone knows that. It's basically a soliloquy is his thoughts aired out externally, 
right? Their inner thoughts. So therefore, it's a very personal and private moment. It's like a voiceover, as we've said. But we've also said that even though it's a soliloquy, the character isn't talking to anyone. It's a private externalization of one's inner thoughts and feelings so that the audience can understand what's going on. But the actor should still create someone who they're talking to. And it doesn't matter whether you as Hamlet, have been directed to sit at the table, drowning your sorrows in a goblet of wine, just talking to yourself, or whether you've been directed to go to the edge of the stage and talk to a member of the audience or all of the audience, or whether you've asked to be stood, basked in a nice colour of light, but you are fixing your point into the audience or above the audience onto the exit sign at the end of the theatre because the director wants you still while you're saying it. Regardless of how it's staged, you, the actor, should still be talking to someone Mm -hmm. and do it for a particular purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, what to you is Hamlet? Well, he's got lots of problems and he wants to get it off his chest. Well, who do you talk to when you're off your chest? What is it that you want to resolve? Well, I talk to my psychiatrist or I talk to my sister or I talk to my mother. And what is it that you want from them? Okay, well, then there you go. Try that. Yeah. And then, as Andrea said, when you're rehearsing it, if you can, put someone else in the room that you can actually practice talking to. Yeah. And get the feeling of what that is. Even if that person is not going to be there when you actually perform it, the experience of actually saying it to someone will fundamentally change Mm -hmm. how you go about getting your objective achieved. So highly recommend that. I completely agree with Andrea on that one. The only other note I would offer is that if in the rehearsal process, you give yourself some freedom for flexibility and you set out to try it a number of different ways, your actual performance may be well served. So you may just find that there are a couple legitimate ways to approach a piece and that you can make them work and you can play around with them and you may decide the day of which route you want to choose. So keep yourself open and flexible during the rehearsal process so that you can come up with the most spontaneous and present way to do it when it comes time for performance. Mm -hmm. And my very technical last point, because it's come up a few times, whether you're going to be performing the monologue to the person that's Mm -hmm. actually in the room with you, Mm -hmm. like the agent or the auditioner. And I probably would recommend not doing that Mm -hmm. or to a specific audience member. I would recommend not doing that unless you were specifically asked by the director or the agent or the auditioner to do that, because that involves the person who is watching in a participatory way that is a different involvement than an observational way. Mm Mm-hmm. And it puts them in a specific role that they may or may not want to be in. And for me, if I'm directing something, which doesn't happen that often, and someone is doing a monologue to me, it changes how I interact with them to the point where I can't be as objective. It makes me much more subjective. Um, So I just be very careful with, are you putting it above their heads or putting it in an empty chair next to the person or something like that? I just, I just be very careful with that. Do you guys have a different take on that? Yeah, it's interesting because I do the exact opposite. In theater, I direct actors to do their monologues to the audience. But to a specific audience member? Uh, Depends. Sometimes a specific audience member, one, because if you connect to the one, you connect to all of them. Mm -hmm. Or if, depending on the piece and what it requires, you know, 
because sometimes it might lend itself to talking to a number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Chekhov and Shakespeare obviously is obvious because that lends itself a lot more. But I like to see a connection to the audience. So mm. I get actors to treat an audience member like it is their psychiatrist or their God. I mean, you mentioned God earlier. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've had a couple of religious people who've gone, well, this is who I turn to. And I go, well, do it. Not in an audition, though. I'm talking about performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. But in an audition, it's... It's notoriously not liked by audition panellists. I mean, they don't like it and casting mm-hmm. directors don't like it. I don't advise it. But I've gone in myself as an actor and gone, would you mind if I delivered it to you? And they said, most of them have said no, but some of them occasionally say, yeah, go for it. And directors. Mm-hmm. And I don't ask with every situation. It was because it felt like it lended itself and it was very personal. Mm-hmm. I did it on a couple of occasions where there was a sort of a good spy speech. It was very simple and naturalistic. And if they said no, then I just picked a spot on the wall above yeah. the heads. But if they said yes, I did it to them. And one time someone got very emotional, you know, and was great with it. One else got emotional and was kind of, she said, oh, I was a bit uncomfortable there. But I'm kind of like, well, I want to give you an experience. So that's my take. I don't advise it to do it at auditions of any sort. Right. And I think that's where I was mostly thinking. But for theatre, I think, yeah, I try and connect with the audience. Cool. Excellent. Well, hopefully this conversation, this two-parter has been really informational for our listeners. I've certainly enjoyed getting deep into it with you guys, as always. And now let's close out the episode as always by finding out what pieces of art we might be recommending to our listeners this week is there anything in particular that you've seen read heard that has inspired you or that you feel we should know about yeah i binged watched i was surprised surprised <laughs> the fourth and final episode of call my agent which is a mm. french series which is set in an actor's agency in paris and it's really fun and it's in french and it's cosmopolitan and it's just i don't know i just feel like oh i'd like to be there i'd like to be there i don't know i don't i don't really speak french i would be completely lost if i really was there but it's great for the actor's fantasy in me to watch the show and i think the performances are great they're getting some great cameos basically each episode has a big star that is like supposedly handled by the agency that is the star of the show and there's some issue that the agency has to deal with with contracts or the actor doesn't want to do the movie or they want to do the movie or they're you know they're sleeping with someone and they can't you know there's all kinds of intrigue and 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 funny and it, it it's real fun it's very very fun so call my agent on Netflix it's really fun there's four seasons and they're all really great so that's nice. what i would recommend very good gary yeah. what about you Ah, sounds c'est cool, as they say c'est in France. Très cool. Yeah, well, I suppose we've been so much talking about binge watching, and there's still plenty out there. Although I feel like, yeah, maybe I've overdone it a bit. So I've been reading a lot more lately, fiction, and what I've been getting into, which is a bit more bite-sized, is short stories, particularly Raymond Carver's short stories. And I really do recommend these short stories because they are such great human stories, mainly relationship-based, very naturalistic, very idiosyncratic characters, but situations are very universal and they're about ordinary people and the struggles and obstacles of life. And 
and you know how they impact on on one's spirit, one's human spirit. And they're funny. Some are just plain tragic and achingly painful, and some are very humorous. So there's a, a fine balancing line between the tragic and the humorous. And the fascinating thing about Raymond Carver is he openly acknowledges an influence of Chekhov, and he's often described as a modern-day Chekhov and his rightful heir. And you can really get that in the nuance. And they are just such brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, even though they're short stories, it might be 10 pages long, they pack so much detail and nuance in. You mm-hmm. just come away. And, you know, his titles are just the best titles. It's like what we talk about when we talk about love mm-hmm. you know mm. uh, it's not you know about love or what we talk about love and when we talk about love it's like what we talk about when we talk about love which is great <laughs> so um they're brilliant and also another thing is is along with john le Carre, as i've mentioned and his characters and along with dickens i sometimes use raymond carver's short stories as ways of getting into character for exercises for advanced work for people to draw on along with hemingway's short stories too are fantastic so i recommend raymond carver's short stories and really getting into the achingly tragic, mundane mm. human spirit of life or the humorous, mundane elements of life and relationships. So, yeah, that's my tip. Raymond Carver. Excellent. I love it. Who, incidentally, if you want to spin off from that into a movie, then, of course, you've got Robert Altman's Shortcuts, which was based on Raymond Carver's short stories. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. I love his work. And I love, Gary, when you talk about using a painting or using a short story as a way to get into character or characterization. I I haven't done it myself, but it's so sexy to me. I don't know. It just, every time you talk about it, I think, oh, that sounds sexy. So it is very sexy. It's like putting on lingerie that. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to know. I think I'm going to stop there. Um, Yeah, okay. And it all came from my love of John le Carre. And it's definitely advanced work, but it's a combination of using one's interpretive skills from the information there Mm -hmm. to then using a favoured word of yours, Brian, from our text analysis podcast, extrapolate out from that. Mm. And it's got to be advanced work because there's often a lot of descriptions, of course, detailed descriptions. There would be in fiction. Like there might be in a casting brief, but it's advanced work because we know where we got to get to now and it's our imaginative faculties are being massaged. We got all the other work down and it's really about being able to let the imagination run with it and still end up with something tangible and actable at the end of it. Hmm. But they are, you know, they're so descriptive that you get such a sense of it. And they're much better than most of the casting breakdowns that I see because they're so generalized and, and often unhelpful. But we still got to deal with them. So I suppose it's that core of something, the essence of something, drilling down to finding the essence of someone and then building out from that, the germ of something and building out from that while still keeping faithful to the original intention and idea. Yeah. And I like it because it gives a sense of play. Yeah. It gives you a license to play around and to use it as a jumping off point. Yeah. Yeah. I like that quite a bit. I use it not just for exercises, but sometimes Mm. with actors who are working on a role. Mm -hmm. And if we need to get into something, I I, I sometimes pick out a particular, if it's relevant, you know, socioeconomic group and and relevant sort of, you know, it's not going to take them down a cul-de-sac in the wrong area. But yeah, I sometimes go, well, read this and and use this as an influence, just in the same way as you might do someone that you know in the street or someone that you knew and base some characters, externals on them, maybe. Yeah, I like Mm -hmm. it. I like Mm -hmm. it. 
Sometimes I find that actors get to a point where they feel they're in a dry phase or they don't know, they, they come up with this idea that they don't know how to create circumstances. They don't know how to create around the tools that they've been given and they feel a little empty. And I find that it's curious that many other types of artists understand that they are meant to be informed by and inspired by and moved by other forms of art. But actors sometimes think if if it's not in another actor's performance, if I don't see it on the stage or in film, how can it really give me what I need? But I would venture to say that the three of us do not agree with that ideology. I mean, we've seen it in ourselves and in our students so much, a piece of music, a dance, a painting, a story, a sculpture. Oh, my God, get me in front of Rodin's, uh, even his works that he did on his way up to the sculptures, you know, the studies that he did. It's, mm. It just sends me off into all sorts of character work. So I think it's a really important point that we come to sometimes to remind people that inspiration is to be found in plenty of other art forms. And who wants to just talk about acting all the time either? Yeah, right. You, know, you go to a party and all you're talking about is acting? <laughs> I mean, I know we have a whole podcast based on that principle, but how boring is that? Oh. Seriously. Get yourself some Raymond Carver and, and, and go and go to a party and talk about that short story you read. And, you know, like that's interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You've got to broaden your horizons. Uh, yes, you do. Um, yes, you do. Super interesting. Particularly as actors, because we, you know, all humanity is there and we have to portray lots of various different things. And, you know, there's a whole well to be drawn on. Mm -hmm. I suppose, you know, inspiration. I mean, you get a set designer and they're getting mood boards from all over the place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's only similar. It's like an actor's mood board, if you like. That's right. That's it. Andrea, what about you? What have you encountered this past week that you want to share with the listeners? Well, speaking of actors looking elsewhere for inspiration, I am listening to now on Audible. I'm loving Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights. I think he's got such a unique voice. Really, he's very talented verbally. And his delivery is phenomenal. So, I mean, while not every book is meant to be listened to, This is definitely a book I would recommend listening to because the way he narrates his own story is just, it's just priceless. And he talks a lot about his family life and his early experiences that got him to the point where he decided to go to film school and started performing. And he just has such a way with the story. It's entertaining and it's informative and I have much more appreciation for him and his work than I ever did before. And he has great stories also about character work, you know. Mm. So I think there's there's lots of good stuff there. So I highly recommend that. And also I'm still listening to Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic, that I'm back to reading. I love her work. And then I started watching a show called Borgen, B-O-R-G-E-N. This is a Danish show that is now on Netflix, and it's about 10 years old. Oh, yes, The Prime Minister. Yes, it's really, it's great. I'm we're, I'm very much enjoying it. I think there were only three seasons made, and they've announced now they will make a fourth season. But I really like the approach to it. It's sort of a cross between... House of Cards and West Wing, it's political intrigue, mm. 
and the performances are really nice, not showy, but very compelling and human and nuanced. And, um, and I'm enjoying that very much. So I would recommend Borgen on Netflix. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as always, we would love to hear from our listeners. We love hearing from you about what you're up to. Let us know what kind of projects you guys are working on or what auditions you're going to. If you're having successes or struggles, we'd love to hear it. And if there's a topic that comes up in your work or in your studies that you think we might be able to address, then definitely let us know. We're at Vagabond Actors on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And uh, our Instagram family is growing. So hello to all of you that are checking us out on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with us as individuals, Gary, how can people get in touch with you? They can get hold of me uh, on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All of them are at Gary Condes. But you're probably better off to drop me a small little email via my website, garycondes.com. Just go to the contact page and, yeah, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. And what about you, Andrea? Andrea's muted. (laughs) So... (laughs) My dog go. was barking. She, she, Andrea can be reached at woof, 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 at woof, woof, woof. <laughs> dot woof. Dot woof. woof. <laughs> dot co dot UK. That's right. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 or Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. Great. And I can be found, as always, at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram. And I have a Facebook page, I think. I have It's severely neglected, but it's there. And until next week, we would just uh, wish all of you to stay safe and healthy and to keep being creative and to keep looking out for that, uh, for that sunny side, you know, for the, for the silver lining on every cloud. So hang in there and be well, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye. Thank you.